If you have your Bibles, open them to the book of Hebrews. If you don't have Bibles, there are some in the back. Uh, I say this regularly, but have your Bible out. Use the Bible. See the words on the page for yourself. Be familiar with your Bible. Um, don't just take people's words for what the Scriptures are declaring, but be in them yourself. See them with your own eyes. Um, such an important thing to, to learn to do well as a believer. If you know Scripture well, then you know that the first chapter of Hebrews is a, um, has this real primary focus of Christ Jesus and his preeminence. He, he's greater than all these other things that the writer is bringing the reader's attention to. And so with that, let me read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? As you can see, this first chapter of Hebrews really focuses on the preeminence, the preeminence of Christ Jesus to all other things. In this small snippet of Hebrews 1, we see in regards to the Son, that the Son is the greatest revelation of God unto us. We see that He is the heir of all things. He is the creator of all things. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds all things by His word and His power. He is the Savior who accomplished purification. He sits now at the right hand of the Father on the throne. He is superior to the angels. His inherited name is more excellent than the angels. He is worshipped by the angels. He He has an everlasting throne. He is indeed God. He has been anointed and possesses gladness beyond all others. He laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and he is therefore eternal. The heavens are the work of his hands. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. His years have no end. And he waits as the Father makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. 
the theme here, and of course all throughout Scripture as well, is the preeminence of Christ Jesus, the God-man. All of the Scriptures point to Christ, and all of God's promises are found as a yes answered through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus. Hebrews draws an amazing clarity and emphasis on Christ and His preeminence. Now that I've used that word a few times, I thought it might be helpful to define it. Very simple definition of preeminence. The fact of surpassing all others. Superiority. And our focus this morning is not the entire chapter of Hebrews. We wouldn't have time to do that, right? Uh, It's just verses 1 through 4 that I want to draw our attention to. And before we dig into that, I want to remind you of something. And my aim is that your hearts would well up with worship as you think about these glorious truths, when we think about the excellencies of Christ, when we consider that He created all things, that He upholds all things, that He is far superior than all of His creation, even the angels, it should absolutely floor us that He entered into His creation to be a sacrificial atonement on behalf of His elect. Church, why would God the Son step down, so to speak, into humanity for sinful, wicked, rebellious sinners? When we remember what He has done for us, whom He has saved, His beloved elect, we must remember it in light of who He is. We must worship Him, church. So with that in mind... Let me share a bit of context to help you understand why the writer of the Hebrews begins with this as his focus. The letter to the Hebrews was written primarily to a Jewish audience, hence the title of the letter written to the Hebrews. Many place this letter as very early. Some even think that it was written before the Gospels were written. And the point of the first chapter of this letter was to point out the superiority of Christ and the Gospel. The aim in doing so was to encourage those Hebrews who uh, perhaps were believing in Christ, but uh, being persecuted and very tempted to set set aside Christ and go back to the things that they knew. It was to encourage them, indeed, that Christ was the Messiah and that there was nothing to go back to. He is it. The angels, the fathers, the sacrificial system, none of that matters. Christ is. Is it? With that, let's go back to verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews and dive in and see what the scriptures declare about Christ. Hebrews 1 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This passage is so rich. We could preach these verses for months and not exhaust what is being told to us by the writer of the Hebrews. 
Some of the details that are implicit in the first four verses of Hebrews could be difficult to grasp without some uh, more foundational work. First, the person of Christ Jesus possessed both a divine nature eternally, and at the incarnation he took on a human nature. This is called the hypostatic union. This theological term is important to understand when we look at our Hebrews passage. In fact, implicit in the passage is not only the hypostatic union, but the triune existence of God. You see at least two persons of the triune God spoken of in the passage. God eternally exists as one being, three persons. God the Father, God the Son Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And so again, these verses could, could be confusing without a foundational understanding of these theological points. And we have taught on these points in great detail in our midweek series, but um, for your sake this morning, I just want to do a really brief and kind of quick illustration of both of those theological topics. So we'll start with the Trinity, and then we'll do the hypostatic union. Um, as I say, when we consider these realities about God, the first thing we have to do is make a new category in our mind. Uh, the worst thing you can do is take what you know and try to make God match what you know. Uh, God is different, right? We are, we are his image bearers, but he is different than we are. So um, when it comes to the triune existence of God, God is one being. Uh, anything that exists has being. So the water bottle I hold in my hand has being. It exists. However, the water bottle is not a person. It has no personhood, right? If I chuck this across the room, you might think something's wrong with me, but you're not really concerned about the bottle. If I had a baby up here and I chucked that across the room, well, now, like, your focus is somebody rescue that baby, right? Something's gone terribly wrong. You're concerned for the baby because it has personhood. It has being and personhood. Those are two different categories. And so the triune God eternally exists as one being, but three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So continuing with that kind of understanding that you have to have a new category and that there's a difference between being and person, when it comes to the hypostatic union, the person of Christ possesses a divine nature eternally, always has, and at the incarnation, he takes on a human nature. So the person of Christ possesses two complete natures. Those natures aren't mixed, they're not confused, they're not blended, right? Not 50-50. But they are forever, after the incarnation, united because they are both possessed by the same person, the person of Christ. So just like I can possess this water bottle and this tablet at the same time, well, the person of Christ possesses two natures, divine and human. The difficulty for us is that Uh, As human beings, we can't possess two natures. We possess one. We aren't made up of multiple persons. We are made up of one, right? And so that's where that difficulty comes in, and, and you get confused when you're trying to think about these truths from Scripture. So make a new category. It's very helpful. Just label it God. And then understand that it's not going to match the things that you and I know or are familiar with, but what we do is we go to God's Word and we see what it declares, and if it declares those things to be true, then we put that in that box and go, then this is indeed true. So with that, let's go back to our passage 
Uh, and particularly this morning, the focus uh, that will be helpful for you is the hypostatic union, that there's two natures that the person of Christ possesses. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and the first part of 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. First, church, we must recognize the amazing grace of God to communicate to his creation. God didn't have to communicate to us, much like he didn't have to send the Son to die for sinners. God's gracious communication unto us, his created, is a very sweet gift. Not only is it a sweet gift, but it is an awesome truth. Church, God spoke. He spoke to us. He didn't just speak, he spoke to his created. When you grasp the massive chasm between God and his creation, between creator and creature, it should floor us that God spoke to us. God has made himself known through his creation. We call that general revelation. But this was not his speaking as mentioned in the passage. God has also made himself known to us in a more thorough and special way through his scripture. That's why we call that special revelation. Church, if the creator of the universe spoke, then we must listen. We have to. How do we listen? Well, we listen by reading his word, his special revelation to us. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 31, as he was having a um, rebuke for the Sadducees, he said, And as for the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what was said to you by God? You see, Jesus held the men who spoke to him while while he walked the earth. He held them accountable to God's word as if God spoke it to them. Have you not read what God spoke to you? Think about the reality that the Sadducees that Jesus was speaking to were not present when the prophets of the Old Testament were given their revelation by God. Yet Jesus still holds them responsible for what was written in the past as being spoken to them by God. Because God has spoken to us through his special revelation, found in Scripture alone, then we must be a people who want to read and know the Word of God. As we see in our Hebrews passage, the way that we received God's special revelation in times past was through the prophets. This happened in diverse ways and manners when God spoke to man through the prophets. Sometimes it was through visions, sometimes through dreams. There was a burning bush, right? But each of these were delivered to us by God's chosen means. The Old Testament that we have today was written by these prophets, and it is a sweet gift to us today to see the history of man and the providence of God. Christian, I can't encourage you enough. Read all the scriptures. See God carry out all of his promises and fulfill them in Christ. Don't neglect to read the Old Testament. It is God's gracious gift revealing to us who he is, what he's done, and what he will do. Notice the specific point of the writer to say that God spoke to our fathers. Well, again, because the primary audience 
was the Jews, the Hebrews, it's fitting. The writer correctly says that God revealed himself to those, those primary audience listeners by speaking to their fathers through the prophets. What you need to see is that by making this clarity, the writer is also explaining to the Jewish audience that now God has spoken to them through his son, through Jesus. Now take that, sorry, take what you know about the hypostatic union and see how much greater the revelation of God is to us through the God-man himself, Jesus Christ. For clarity's sake, this does not mean in any way that the prophets of old could have gotten something wrong. There's no mention of errors or accuracy in this passage in Hebrews, right? Rather, what this shows us is that the greatest revelation of God to us was delivered through His Son, the preeminent one. The most intimate revelation of God to us was given through God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus. The writer, and of course therefore God, is saying this is greater by way of intimacy or closeness, and it is greater by way of the fulfillment of God's promises of the new covenant. Again, we know that all of God's word was written by men who were carried along by God the Holy Spirit. His word is perfect and infallible. But the author draws this distinction to point to this greater revelation to us from God by it being delivered to us through the Son and for the purpose of gospel revelation. Uh, Pastor Rob gave this as a great illustration. He said, think of it this way. When a king sends out an edict by way of a messenger or even an invitation to a feast, The message is just as valid and true when delivered by the messenger as if it were delivered by the king himself. But how much more special is it when the king himself shows up at your door and tells you in person that he is inviting you to the feast? This is what our king has done. Not only has he delivered his word in person, but he has displayed his great love for his people in person. Church, see the extraordinary grace of God to send the Son to communicate to us through Him. Considering what Christ has said in the New Testament Gospels multiple times, if you have seen Him, Christ Jesus, then you have seen the unseeable Father. Consider not only that the Son spoke to us, but that the purpose of His coming was to complete redemption for fallen man elected by God unto salvation. The intimacy of God's revelation and the greater or clearer purpose of God's revelation through the Son, namely the gospel. So we see that God spoke, and therefore we must listen. We must revere the word of God as it is our source of truth and our ultimate standard. If God has spoken to us, we don't need to spend time deciding if we like what God has said. Or if we think that it's good or true, right? It is good and true because God has declared it to be so. Our text declares that long ago and in many ways God spoke to us through the prophets. But in these last days God spoke to us through his son. Because the person of Jesus is the one who possessed both a divine nature and at the, human, at the incarnation a human nature then Jesus is the one who himself spoke to us and rescued us 
from our sin. It is clear that God's communication to us is more intimate in that manner, and the gospel revelation and new covenant is the fulfillment of things previously revealed to us by God. The Son's revelation of us to God is the greatest, most complete revelation God has and will deliver to us until He returns. The person of the Son, who is the second person of the triune God, spoke to us through His human nature, and that's amazing. The God-man who upholds the universe by the word of His power entered into humanity and spoke to us. He communicated to us who God was, especially emphasizing the Father. This is why Jesus says in John 12, verses 45, sorry, 44 through 45 and 49 through 50, it says, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Verse 49, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And then again in John 14, verses 6 and 7, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. No prophet who was spoken to by God had ever said such things, nor could they. Jesus revealed God to us in such a way that if we saw him, we saw the Father. Jesus said more than once that he was in the Father and the Father was him, that he and the Father were one. Jesus' revelation of God to us was given by the very person who possessed both a divine nature, the nature of God, and a human nature, the nature of man. God spoke to us through his Son, church. And that should floor us. It should absolutely floor us. Hebrews 1, 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. In the second part of this verse, there's two things that should really stand out to us. The Son is appointed heir of all things, but it is also said that the Son is the creator of all things. Well, by being the creator, the Son already owns all things. So how can he be appointed as the heir? Again, this is where your right understanding of the hypostatic union comes in, and we've got to do some work to rightly apply what the passage is saying. If Jesus is God, then he owns all things by mere fact of him being the creator of all things. And that's true. Jesus owns all things. So the reader here must consider the natures of Jesus. Jesus' divine nature owns all things, created all things, and upholds all things by the word of his power. His divine nature has never appointed anything because he is supremely authoritative, as is the Father and the Spirit. When we see this language, we must rightly apply it to the human nature of Christ Jesus. If the person of Jesus not only possessed a divine nature, but also possessed a fully human nature, then that nature as human, 
can be appointed things by God. And this is indeed what the passage is pointing to. God the Father has appointed the human nature of Christ to be the heir of all things. In the very next words, the same person of Christ is revealed to us to possess a divine nature, as all of creation was made through him. This is not a statement that can be made of a mere man, or anything else in all creation, right? See that the person of Christ in his divine nature possesses all things and is the creator of all things, and in his human nature has been appointed the heir of all things, so that both natures possess now and when Christ returns all things. Everything belongs to Christ. This is one unique way that the Father shows his supreme favor to the God-man, Christ Jesus. Christ is not preeminent by means of his divine nature alone. But in his human nature, he is made preeminent as well. For example, considering his human nature, he was the firstborn from among the dead. No other man was resurrected in their glorified body prior to Christ. We see this from Colossians 1, 15-20. Colossians 1, 15-20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." Over and over again, the scriptures point to the deity of Christ and to the human nature of Christ. This is why a right understanding of the hypostatic union is so important. This is why also the, the writer was trying to unpack these things in such detail so that the, the Hebrew Jewish audience would understand that this Jesus that they heard of that they knew was a man was also God. And that both his divine nature and his human nature were preeminent, more valuable than all of the other things that they valued. When Scripture speaks about Jesus but implies things that can only be applied to human, to man, then we know this is speaking to the human nature of Christ. Likewise, when we see things in Scripture spoken about Jesus and we know there are things that can only be applied to God, then we know it is in reference to Jesus' divine nature. With that understanding, church, I again cannot encourage you more to read the Word of God and to see how much this truth makes sense of so many passages. Now, just in case the audience is not quite convinced of the reality of the divinity of Christ, the author declares again things that can only be applied to God. Hebrews 1, first part of verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What an incredible statement made about the person of Christ. The person of Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. I've heard it said like this, and, and 
stay with me. All illustrations fall short when we think about things created and try to make them match up with God, right? But I've heard it said like this, as the sun, the, the giant ball of gas in the sky, not the sun, God the sun, right? As the sun, as the sun's rays radiate its heat and power, they are also a part of the sun. The rays of the sun come from the sun and they are sent out by the sun and are a part of the sun. The rays do not exist if they do not come from the sun. The thing that is heating up our city outside so much is the sun. The rays coming out of the sun are only adding to that, right? Now this comparison of Jesus to the sun, again, falls short because Jesus is not part of the Father, right? They're not in parts. Jesus is God. He has a divine nature. But the text says that he displays God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And then it goes on to say that he is the exact imprint of his nature. Uh, There's a few Greek words that I'm going to totally butcher when I say, but just stick with me as I go through this. The, the Greek word here is charakter, meaning the exact expression of the hypostasios, meaning substance, of autu, meaning of him, namely God. So Jesus is the exact expression of the substance of God. And this cannot be said of something that is created. Mankind is made in God's image, But we are far from the exact expression of the substance of God. The Young's literal translation reads like this, uh, Hebrews 1.3, Who being the brightness of the glory and the impress of his subsistence. The impress of his subsistence is not an attribute given to man. It is meant to point us to the reality that Jesus is the exact representation of God because he is God. And this could never be said of a mere prophet or a man. Now, the Jewish audience, upon reading this, would have known exactly what the author was declaring. Uh, Perhaps it's confusing for you, but it would not have been confusing for them. In fact, we see in the scriptures, the Jews of Jesus' day knew that Jesus himself, the man Jesus, was declaring to be God. In John chapter 10, verses 31 through 33, we see some things unfold. And it ends like this. It says, They picked up stones to stone him because he, being a man, made himself out to be God. So as the Hebrews had heard these first few sentences of this letter, they would have had zero doubt known that the author was declaring Jesus to be both God and man. Our passage goes on and states, And he, Jesus, upholds the universe By the power of his word. How did God create the universe? He spoke it into existence through the sun. How does the sun uphold the universe? I want you to think deeply about this. Not just every atom on this planet, including the ones that keep our bodies together, but the cosmos. The stars, the the sun, the universes, the heavens, all of it. The most minute thing to the greatest thing is upheld by.
by the word of Christ Jesus in his power. How can anyone declare that this Jesus was a creation and not God himself? Our passage in verse 3 doesn't end there, though. It goes on and says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, Jesus was not only God who upholds the universe by the word of his power, but he also made purification for sin. If you study scripture much, you know that God alone is the one who can forgive sins, make purification for them. Now, since God requires death for sin, who but a man could die for sin? God can't die. The divine nature cannot be killed. Church, Jesus is the God-man. The person of Christ has both a divine and human nature. He simultaneously upheld the universe with his divine nature while his human nature suffered death on the cross, the very thing his divine nature was upholding. It happened at the same time. Church, may we search the scriptures and mine the gold of God's revelation to us not just through the prophets, but through the Son, and worship Him. The person of Christ, who eternally possessed a divine nature and created all things and upholds all things, entered into humanity, taking on a human nature. And He died in the place of His creation, church, in the place of His beloved elect. And that is amazing. Notice the clarity of the passage. He didn't just try to make purification for sins. He he didn't just make purification for sin possible and then kind of went, hope it turns out okay. He made purification for sin, and after having done that, he sat down because the work was finished. It was done. He made it. It is complete. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, the majesty on high. And this proves that God the Father accepted his human sacrifice. He accepted the work of Christ. Christ's work was completed. It was finished. Salvation, purification from sin was completed by Christ and Christ alone. And if you are here today and you are still dead in your sin, if you are refusing to bow your knee to Christ, then hear this. Repent of that. Bow your knee. Trust in Christ. There is no other Savior. There is no other way to God. Turn from your idolatry, from your self-salvation, and believe the truth that God has revealed in His Word. Trust in Christ alone. Finally, coming to verse 4. I'll read the last half of verse 3 and the first part of verse 4. or Well, the full verse 4. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The Jews highly revered the angels and the truths of God revealed to them about the angels. Again, the author is displaying the preeminence of Christ above all things. The human nature of the person of Christ was made for a little while lower than the angels. 
In case people would understand this to mean as a man, Jesus could not be God because the angels were considered higher than man, the author leaves no doubt in their mind by writing it this way. What was the name that Jesus inherited? Luke 1, verses 26 through 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called a son, the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I could have read the last couple verses and made the point, but I wanted you to see not only the name that Jesus inherited, but that it was an angel who was delivering this news, right? The Son of the Most High, Jesus. This is the name inherited by the person of Jesus, and his kingdom will reign forever. He sits on a throne at the right hand of the Father now. As we gather, church, this morning, today, Jesus sits on the throne at the right hand of the Father. So no matter what happens in this world around us, Jesus reigns. The Father is making his enemies a footrest for him, church. God is not absent. Things are not out of control. These things are never said of an angel or of a man, but only of Jesus, who is both God and man. Oh, how superior he is indeed than the angels. Jesus sits on the throne, in fact, while the angels worship him around it. This is really um, an amazing passage that we see in Isaiah. It's Isaiah 6, 1 through 10. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! For I am, a, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, 
lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Church Isaiah, a prophet of old, whom God spoke to the fathers through, sees the throne room of God where the angels, the seraphim, are worshiping Jesus. Now Isaiah said he saw the King, the Lord, all capital letters meaning Yahweh. So the prophet declares that this is Yahweh, God, that is being worshipped on the throne by the angels. And we know that this is referring to Jesus because, one, no one has seen the Father as Jesus has declared in John. And in John chapter 12, we see the writer applying this very event in Isaiah to Jesus. So cool. Check this out. John chapter 12, verse 36 through 43. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, that's Jesus. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, But for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let there be no doubt in your minds today, church, that Jesus is God. He is on the throne, and he is ruling. One day he will wipe away every tear. He will remove sin completely. But until then, he reigns. And he has secured salvation for his people. His salvation is done. It is complete. He's accomplished it. And I pray that this would restore your hope if recent times for you have been rough. If they've been good, then I pray it just wells your heart up with even more worship for your good Lord and Savior. I want to close again by a means of of aiming to stir your heart for worship of God. Just think about this. This is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 18. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again... I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Church, this, this Jesus is the Lord of glory who entered into humanity, who perfectly obeyed the law of God. He then willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice for sinners through a vile death on the cross. All the while, his divine nature is upholding those things. That's so hard to comprehend. He then resurrected the firstborn from among the dead that he might be preeminent in all things, proving that his sacrifice was sufficient. He was made lower than the angels for a little while and subjected to suffering so that he might be the great Savior of mankind. Church, this is your Savior. This is the only Savior who exists. He created you, and He entered into His own creation to save you. That should cause your hearts to well up with worship. He is able to help those who are being tempted, and He is able to sympathize with our frailness as men because He, likewise, possessed a human nature. And as Lord, He is able to save to the uttermost those who put their faith in in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for our time together this morning, for your word spoken to us through the prophets and through your son. God, that you have not only created us, but communicated to us. You've knelt down, so to speak, to communicate to us who you are what you require of us. How we may be saved from our sin. Not only did you speak to us through the fathers, but you sent the Son, the God-man, Christ Jesus, more intimately communicated to us and brought into picture the fullness of all that you were planning in times past. And we are such a blessed people. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would be reminding our hearts of that reality. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be stirring our hearts to a thankfulness, a a deeper and deeper gratitude for the Son, for you sending him, for salvation. It is because of Christ that we can pray. Amen.